Um, you know, there was a, a ship wrecked at sea once and uh, two survivors swum to a nearby island and they looked at this island and they looked at their circumstances and they realised that there is nothing that they can do other than to pray. And so they thought, well, how are we going to know whose prayer is effective? So they decided to divide the island in two. One went to one side of the island, the other went to the other side of the island, and they said, we'll both pray and see who who's, you know, whose prayers are answered. So one guy was praying, the first guy he was praying, and he was like, oh, I really need some, some food and some water. And so the next morning he woke up and he noticed on his side of the island he found these fruit-bearing trees that were laden with fruit and even found a, a, a spring and there was water. Yet he looked to the other side of the island and it was barren. And there was no food and, and no water. And so he was thankful that his prayers were answered. He then started praying for some shelter and so the next day, washed up on the shore was, was shelter. And so he grabbed that and built a shelter for himself. He then got a bit lonely and asked, prayed that God would send him some company. Well, the next morning, a beautiful woman washes up on the shore, a, a fellow shipwrecky. And so he's like, well, I, I need to, 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 to provide, you know, now for, for more than just myself. So he prayed that he'd be able to get more shelter and clothing and, and everything. And all his prayers were answered. And then him and his new wife were, uh, were trying to work out uh, how to get back to civilization. So they prayed that they'd be rescued. And the next day a ship arrived and docked on their side of the island. And so... They boarded the ship, and as uh, they were, were going through, um, he was sort of thinking, well, should I go and grab the other guy and bring him as well? But he didn't get any sh food, any, any water, any shelter. And, like, none of his prayers were answered. So he decided that he must be unworthy and left him there. As the ship was about to leave, the first man heard a voice from, from the sky, a voice from heaven said, why are you leaving your companion on the island? To which he replied, well, since I got everything I prayed for, my blessings must be the result of my faith and prayers. His prayers went out and answered, which is why he has nothing. So I figured he doesn't deserve to leave the island with me. The voice from the sky responded, You are sorely mistaken. You are in a great debt to that man. What do you mean? The man responded. It was the faith and the prayers offered by that man that bought you all of your blessings because his prayer was, May you grant all of the other man's prayers. Today as we begin uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, prayer takes center stage. As we see that prayer is vital to building community shaped by the gospel. You know, it's great to hear stories of answered prayer and I'm going to share some with you later today. But Paul, having denounced in chapter 1 the idle speculations of false teachers, he turns to expanding in specific terms what true gospel living should look like. True gospel living is characterised by prayer. 
So we read earlier from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, where he says that, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, for all those in high positions, that may lead peaceful, quiet and godly and dignified lives in every way. This is good. It's pleasing in sight of God, our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, Paul, he says, I was appointed as a preacher and a possible, and I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, he's saying, a teacher of the Gentiles, so not just Jews, in faith and truth. See, this is Paul's first positive instruction to Timothy regarding his leadership of the Ephesian church was that believers should offer prayer for all people. And he gave this directive in order to emphasise its importance, defend its value and clarify its practice. D. Edmund Hybert, in his book titled Working with God, Scriptural Studies in Intercession, writes, The ministry of prayer is the most important service that the Church of Christ can engage in. It is the most dynamic work which God has entrusted to his saints, but it is also the most neglected ministry open to the believer. Every aspect of the kind of prayer that Paul urged here touches the church's evangelistic mission. Prayer is not the subject of this section, but it's the context for that subject, which is the salvation of all people, the hope of the gospel. You know, Paul says in verse 1, first of all, he's underlining the importance of this Godward aspect of the ministry of the church. Paul's saying that prayer is an activity he regards as of primary importance in the total ministry of the church. Spurgeon once wrote that prayer links us with the eternal, the omnipotent, the infinite, and hence it is our chief resort. So this always puzzles me though, why when we hold church prayer meetings that they're so poorly attended. It doesn't make sense to me. The last prayer meeting that we had here consisted of myself and one other and it breaks my heart. We come on a Sunday, all hundred of us today, yet when we call a prayer meeting, there's less than a handful. It doesn't make sense and it breaks my heart. Do we not value prayer enough? Why don't we value prayer enough as a community of faith to come together and pray together? Do we truly believe that prayer is of primary importance? If we did, then wouldn't the attendance at our prayer meetings reflect that a bit more? And I know coming out in an evening is not comfortable, not always nice, not always easy, not always possible... And I know that many people pray at many other times. So I'm not saying that prayer doesn't happen. What I'm saying is there's something when two or three are gathered, something special happens. As the scriptures tell us, Jesus is there with our midst. So when we call a prayer meeting, we should pray, right? Prayer is of primary importance. And Paul says we should pray for all people. You know, he uses four different words for prayer here. And although the words are slightly different with slightly different emphases, the main point from Paul here that he's reinforcing is that 
prayer is important for Christians and that Christians should pray all types of prayers for all people. So he mentions supplications. You know, he emphasises the earnestness with which we should make petitions because we feel a need for what we ask. He says prayer is a general word that covers all types of prayer communication with God. And so the emphasis for all prayer is on a spirit of reverence towards God. He mentions intercessions. These are confident requests for others and ourselves. And he mentions thanksgivings, which is the most different word. Um, and it serves as a reminder that we should express gratitude, not just need, in public praying. But by using these prayer synonyms, Paul was emphasising the importance of praying all kinds of different prayers for all people, as well as its different varieties. How many more ways can he tell us that prayer is important? That's what he's trying to communicate very effectively. And so prayer is so vital because it invites God into the situation that we're praying about and it secures his working on behalf of those in need. As Christians, we must not fail to take advantage of this supernatural resource at our disposal by neglecting prayer. So Paul says to pray for everyone, yet he then also gives specific instructions to pray for kings and those in high positions. And the reason is because kings and those in high positions have a disproportionately high impact on the entire community, particularly communities shaped by the gospel. So we should pray for governmental leaders, the kings, and those in positions of lesser authority under them, so that's all those other people who are in authority, so that we may lead tranquil, outwardly peaceful and quiet, inwardly peaceful lives. We should not do so primarily for our ease and enjoyment, but so that we can carry out our purpose in the world as Christians. Our purpose is to bring a message of reconciliation to all people, the hope of the gospel, and to glorify God in all of our relationships. Obviously, the type of government under which we live influences our lives and affects our spiritual welfare, and so we should be praying for those in authority. As verse 4 says, prayers of this type please God our Saviour, the one who delights to rescue sinners from the wages of their sin. God wants everyone to experience eternal salvation. That is his heart that is sharing for us. You know, people perish because they do not hear the gospel or hearing it, they choose to reject it. But God has given people freedom to choose, to accept or reject the gospel. But when people reject the gospel, it causes God considerable pain because he loves us. He does not want to see out his children rejecting him. But how can I preach on prayer without touching on one of the greatest passages of prayer in the Bible, which is James chapter 5 from verse 13, which says, If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, 
And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruits. You know, we all know as Christians that we should pray. That's verse 13 and 14. It's pretty clear. James instructs Christians to pray when suffering, verse 13. He instructs Christians to pray when cheerful. He instructs Christians to call the elders to pray when sick. You know, prayer is an important, very important part of our Christian life. It's where we speak to God. It's where we share the realities of life and cry out before him in all of our circumstances, whether they are bad and we need his intervention, or whether they're, they're good and we can praise God for his blessing. But sometimes we forget the power of prayer. Prayer can heal people. And prayer leads to forgiveness. But we must not forget that that prayer is powerful. You know, James gave us the example of Elijah. Elijah demonstrated a prayer of faith in 1 Kings. We read his amazing story from chapter 16. Go and read it later this afternoon. It's an amazing story. If you can't remember it, go check it out. But James tells us there was nothing special about Elijah. He was a man just like you and I. He prayed to the same God and the same God Elijah prayed to listens to your prayers as well. We're just like Elijah, so pray. Jesus himself even taught us how to pray. He said we should pray for God's honour, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We should pray for God's kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should pray for God's provision, give us this day our daily bread. We should pray for God's forgiveness, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We should pray for God's protection, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in verses 5 and 6 in Timothy 2, Paul spells out clearly that Jesus, God's incarnate Son, Israel's Messiah, is the one and only mediator, the only way to salvation. And furthermore, this verse, it allows no place for intermediaries between people and Jesus, such as saints or human priests. We've got direct access to Jesus in prayer. You don't need to go to a priest to, to speak with, with God himself. I always find it interesting when people say, Aaron, can you please pray for me, which I love doing, but then when they say, oh, just something special happens when you pray. And I was like, no, no. You might feel that, but no, you have the same access to God as what I do. You're just as close as, as he, to, you know, we, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Like, I can, me praying for you does nothing other than, you know, help join in that process or pray together even better. Jesus is promised to be right there with us. So you pray and I'll pray too, but you pray, right? So we've covered prayer pretty well. A healthy, flourishing, gospel-centered community is built through prayer. And you know, 18 months, 32 years ago, we had a prayer vision as a church. And can anyone tell me what that was? Our prayer vision over the last year and a half ish. Well, we have this special one, 10, 10, 10, 22. Remember that one? Yeah, you remember that right now? Yeah. Well, you know, that was, what were that? It was 10, 10, 10, 22. So it was 10 new families, 
10 young adults, 10 people saved by the end of 2022. We prayed for that for a long time, for 18 months or more. And it was, it was yeah. So when I look at it, we've had 10 families come. God answers prayer. We've had 10 young adults come. God answers prayer. And this year we had 11 baptisms. God answers prayer. Sorry, I meant last year. We're already in the next year. So by the end of 2022, the 10, 10, 10, God delivered. God answered prayer and he said, yes, of course, there you go. So what are we praying for now? Well, Thursday the 2nd of Feb, we're going to ask God to share his vision for our prayer life for this coming year so that we can be praying those big prayers. Now, when I come and said, we're going to have this prayer, we're going to ask for 10 people saved, 10 new families, 10 young adults, how many people thought, oh man, that's not going to happen? Be honest, I can't ask too many of you because there's only half of you here were at that, here at that time. But God answers prayer and he does it in amazing, powerful ways. And so I'm really pleased to say that I'm, I'm thrilled that God has answered those prayers and many of you sitting here are actually an answer to prayer. Did you not know? We prayed for you and you are here. And what a wonderful thing to have a family and the, the, what we can do then as a family together for our community to bring the hope of the gospel. Um, one of the things that we do need to be praying for though, if outside of, if, you know, is we'd love more musicians. So we, we have a, 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 a vision to see our live music on every single service. We have a band, you know, to ha but that, to have a band needs musicians and so we're a bit light on. So that's one area I know you can be praying for in a practical sense. So that's prayer. We're covered with prayer. Come to our prayer meeting on February 2 to pray together. But from verse 8, Paul turns his attention to what characterises a gospel-centred community. So he's saying that prayer does, start with prayer, primary importance. And so from verse 8, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray. Oh, that's good. He starts again with prayer. Um, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise, also women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works, that a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue faith and love and holiness with self-control. Controversial passage. All right, let's get in. Now, last week, I began this series in Timothy. I said this. The theme of 1 Timothy is that the gospel leads to practical, visible changes in the lives of those who believe it. And that Paul's main focus is that true Christianity is evidenced by lifestyles shaped by the gospel. That's what I said last week. That's the main theme. That's the context we look at this passage in. So this section's focus is exactly that. Paul outlines many characteristics of what fruit a Christian's life should be producing as their life is shaped 
by the gospel. The first one is prayer. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands. Men, you should be leading the way in your church and in your family in prayer. You should not be concerned with how you might look to others, but be fully surrendered to the Lord. Now you might ask, Aaron, why do you lift your hands when we sing, when we worship? Well, I lift my hands because I'm praying and I'm, as I'm singing to God. I'm lifting my hands in an expression of surrender, of praise, of worship. And because I'm actually, you know, um, practicing an ancient form of prayer. You know, the Bible, typically, a typical posture of prayer in the Bible was to lift hands. Now, if you're not into, you know, traditional forms of worship practice, and you're one of these modern people that, you know, practicing a new modern style of prayer with your hands down, that's fine too. But feel free to lift them up as well if you want to practice biblical prayer, ancient forms of prayer. You can lift your hands, feel free, or you can be very modern and new, new age in your prayer um, methods um, and have them, have them down, right? Really, it doesn't matter, does it, Right? But the thing is, the focus is a gospel life, a shape, life shaped by the gospel. Men lead in prayer. Um, prayer is what characterises a gospel-centred community. Uh, second is a calm and agreeable disposition. You know, our hands should be used in prayer rather than in anger and quarrelling, right? So our disposition towards others should be calm and agreeable as the gospel produces fruit in our lives. When you think of places where a high level of decorum is expected, a funeral is pretty high on the list, isn't it? We expect everyone to be respectful, quiet, calm and agreeable. Well, I remember a few years ago, as, uh, at the end of a funeral, there was about 300 people present. As the coffin's lowering at the end, well, the family just couldn't hold it in any longer and started punching on in the chapel. They started punching on. It spilled up the aisles out into the foyer. People were being thrown against glass walls and everything at a funeral. So we called the, the cops, obviously, which was enough for them to disperse. But it's very interesting to have the riot squad um, come to a cemetery. Uh, yeah. Calm and agreeable doesn't mean we punch on, right? And it means we shouldn't be punching on with words either. Sometimes they hurt more than a fist that causes a bruise which can heal. So be calm and agreeable, not uh, punching on with words or anything else, but lift holy hands. Our hands should be used in prayer rather than in fighting. Um, and I haven't seen many fisty cuffs breaking out here in church, so that's really good. Um, well done, that, that's really good. Um, but let's have more of the praying, thank you. Um, third is modesty and respect. Women should adorn themselves in respectable, uh, respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And here's where I get cancelled. Who am I to tell women what they should wear? Well, I'm not telling anyone what to wear, but we will look at the values we should hold as believers in the gospel as we live lives shaped by the gospel. Modesty 
should govern everyone's choices in clothing. I don't believe this is just for women, but should be for everyone. Men and women the same. You should have enough self-respect to be confident in who you are, regardless of what you wear, but also have enough respect for those around you to be modest. Don't use clothing to flaunt anything, not to flaunt your wealth or any physical attributes either. Modesty and respect characterise a gospel-centred community. Number four is godliness. If you profess godliness, it should be evident in many ways, not just in what you wear or in how you look. Put simply, godliness is living a fruitful, obedient Christian life. Christians should be remarkable for our Christ-like behaviour, more so than for our clothes, hairstyles or other externals that are important to the world. Godliness characterises a gospel-centred community. Good works is the next that Timothy cover, uh, Paul t- covers in Timothy 2. And good works that express godly character should also Christ- uh, characterise Christians more than the way that we dress and groom ourselves. The contrast is between works and wardrobe. If you're putting more effort and, and time and energy into your wardrobe than you are good works, you might have to have a rethink. The contrast is pretty clear. And obviously Paul was not saying that the external appearance, including good grooming and cleanliness, are unimportant. You should take care of yourself. And, you know, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, some have a larger temple than others, and that's okay too. Um, but we should take care of it. And we should, you know, be well-dressed, if you know, because that rep- represents us well, um, particularly with grooming and cleanliness. Um, but Paul didn't want Christians to make dress and, and, and a stunning impression uh, a focus on themselves, distracting anyone's attention away from worship. Our focus should be on how we serve others and accomplish the good works that have been prepared in advance to, for us to do, rather than dressing or, or, or carrying ourselves in a way that brought, brings the attention on us. It should be taking attention to God. So good works characterise a gospel-centred community. That's the easiest way for other people to, to focus on God is when you serve them and do those good works he's prepared. Um, number six is, is teachable. As Christians, we should continually seek to learn and be teachable. Not one of us knows everything. We've all got much to learn. Heather, you're 97 have you got anything else left to learn? A lot, lots. Take the wisdom of a 97-year-old. There's still lots to learn. Um, so having a posture that is open to, to hearing from God, learning from his word and responding in obedience is what should characterise Christians and our gospel-centred community. Now I need to step into some, a, a theological minefield of what Paul's writing here and it is controversial for many And here's where I get cancelled again. These are the words that Paul wrote. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Excuse me. Ready? 
whole counsel of God, we read the scriptures, we teach through a book, book, we don't skip over the bits that might be unpopular because it's the whole counsel of God. Paul taught that women were to let men provide public instruction and leadership. He didn't mean that women should surrender their minds and consciences to men, but they should voluntarily take the position of learners in church meetings. But isn't that the position we should all adopt? Right? In a church meeting, we should all be coming here to learn from the scriptures. It's not gendered, right? So this is a position we should all adopt if we are to be teachable. But this was also a radical and a liberating departure from the Jewish view that women weren't to learn the law. So this is actually a permissive thing that Paul is bringing into the church that didn't exist in Jewish culture. Yes, women, you may learn just like men and we should be teachable. Now some people get really upset when they read these words with all submissiveness in verse 11. And the Greek word used here is hypotage, which means to rank under. And it's clear in military life that a private, for example, who ranks under a colonel is not necessarily of less value or possesses less ability than their superior officer. Rank has to do with order and authority, not personal superiority and inferiority. An example of willing submission is Jesus Christ, who, although superior to all of creation and all of mankind, nonetheless submitted himself to other human beings. God rewarded his submission to the Father and will reward those who submit to his will as unto the Lord. Submission is not an indicator of value. So what does this mean for women in leadership and preaching? Well, I firmly believe that the Bible clearly establishes the pattern for strong male leadership. This is the order and authority that God has established throughout the scripture. But I also believe that God won't let his people suffer because of a lack of leadership. Where women are in leadership roles, I believe that's more an indictment on the men. Why are the men not stepping up and taking on those roles? And that might be something to do with us men as well, because if a woman's going to do something for us, 99 times out of 100, we'll let them. Right? It's because we're, why not? If, if a woman's going to do it, and I don't have to, great, let them go for it. But it actually might be the easiest decision, but it might not be the best decision, because we as men have been given a special uh, role by God. And we need to step up. We need to lead our community, to lead our families, and yes, to lead our church. You know, we've got wonderful, fabulously talented and gifted women in our church. And I'm so glad that so many are filling different positions and roles of leadership as God has led, directed and gifted you. And there are many more positions and roles where you can serve Jesus, whatever gender you are. Do not be discouraged by this teaching or think there is less that you can do. That's not what Paul's point is here. Paul is establishing order where there was chaos. Many people, however, when reading this passage, try to explain it away with cultural arguments. They say that, well, women weren't educated or that it's just reflecting the male-dominated culture of the day, the patriarchy. And so they use culture to interpret Paul's instruction so that it's more palatable for our modern minds and permissive of women in any role. But here's the thing. Highly educated women did exist at the time 
and some women did hold some leadership positions in the early church, some of whom Paul actually wrote himself to and encouraged. So those cultural arguments don't actually stack up. What Paul does, though, instead of turning to culture to support his arguments, he actually turns to the order of creation. But the words he used in this instruction, particularly against teaching, are different to the words he normally used when referring to exercising authority, and they are actually in the present tense. So what does it mean? It means that it's not black and white. It's not a blanket rule for everything of women are not to teach. Paul's writing here refers to a continuing ministry rather than a single instance of ministry. And Paul doesn't object to women teaching or leading some groups within the church, provided they do so within the authority and leadership structure of the church. So we should bear in mind that Paul was describing a typical church situation where there were men present who could provide teaching and leadership. If male leaders were absent, exceptions might be necessary to achieve the higher goals of the church, namely the building up of the saints to do the work of the ministry. In some places in the world today, there are few males who can or care to provide leadership in churches. In these situations, I think God does raise up female leaders rather than leave his church flailing. So when it comes to females preaching, it's not the norm because you employed a male pastor who does 99% of the preaching, right? So I'm going to be preaching here most Sundays. But occasionally there may be some women who do come to preach. We've had them come in the past and will in the future too. Um, so we should though be training and encouraging all people to know how to expound the gospel and share the hope we have in the scriptures with other people, the hope that we have in the gospel. And so we will be continuing to train uh, people in the gospel and how to communicate that. You know, a woman can have authority over others in the church provided that she's submissive and under the authority of the leadership of the church. It's the same for anyone. It's not a gendered thing here. Everyone who preaches from this pulpit, male or female, does so under my authority as the shepherd of this flock. There's no one usurping or acting on their own authority when they preach here. So every now and then, we may have a woman preach under my authority, as Paul allows in this passage, but it's not the norm because... I'm your pastor and I'm a bloke. So that's just a reality. Now, as the BUV, the broader Victorian Baptist Union, it's an egalitarian organisation and welcomes and encourages women to fill any and all roles in the church. The egalitarian view is that there is nothing in this passage that limits the role of women in the church in any way. And I respect that point of view and the BOV, they also have a, a doctrine of the autonomy of the local body. And so we operate within the BUV network, but under our own authority as our own church. And so within our church, we've got people on all sides of the spectrum of this issue. It's everywhere. There's people who are firmly no female preachers. There's people who are firmly women can do everything and anything, and there's everything in between, right? <laughs> That's the reality. Okay, so let me make something clear. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get offended today. Don't allow your personal views, ideas or theology to sidetrack you from your focus on the gospel and how it builds community. 
Right? You may not agree with what Paul writes in this passage, but don't let it distract you from your love for Christ and his call upon your life to bring the hope of the gospel to others. Don't let this become a point of contention. In all things, let love and grace guide you. Chuck Swindoll said, God's word prescribes role distinctions while also preserving the equal dignity, worth and spirituality of both sexes. Let me read that again. God's word prescribes role distinctions while also preserving equal dignity, worth and spirituality of both sexes. We are united in the equal dignity, worth and spirituality regardless of our sex. So don't let this divide us in any way. Being teachable characterises a gospel-centred community. So how do I go to get cancelled a few times already today? That's good. Uh, also being obedient. You know, not a single one of us is built to enjoy being obedient. We all rail against it and we've done this since before we could even talk, Right? Uh, yet blessing comes through obedience to God. And you might not like what the Bible says at times. It might be a bit icky to your modern senses. Um, but you're blessed when you're teachable and obedient to its instruction. You're blessed when you're obedient to the word of God and to God's revelation to us. Being obedient characterises a gospel-centred community. And so does faith. Endurance and perseverance in faith is necessary for our salvation. We are saved as we persevere and continue in faith and carry out the Lord's calling on our lives. One example of this is the unique role of women in childbearing being one way that God has uniquely promised that it would lead to a fulfilling and meaningful life for women. I'll get cancelled again. Of course, every human being, male or female, married or single, finds our greatest fulfilment in life through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But God has created women with a special role that men are unable to fulfil. When Paul writes, yet she'll be saved through childbearing, interesting wording, he isn't saying that the act of birthing a child is what saves you. He's saying that although there may be some roles you're not specifically designed for, here's one that you are, and one that is so incredibly important and valuable. A mother is in the unique position of shaping the next generation. And if she does that whilst continuing in faith, love, holiness and self-control, she exemplifies a gospel-centred life and will lead the next generation well. And so love, holiness, self-control along with faith is the picture of a successful Christian life, according to Paul. And women, you get extra blessing. If God blesses you with children of being a mother, that is something unique for only you, which I can never be. I'm not blessed that way. So I guess there's a challenge to each of us gurgling under the surface of 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, that challenge is to pray and pray together. Take every opportunity you can to pray. Cultivate a life that is characterised by prayer and sacrifice your time, your comfort and your leisure to join us in corporate prayer when we do hold corporate prayer meetings. 
In fact, we are holding one, as I said, an all-church prayer meeting on Thursday, February 2nd at 7pm here at the church. I'd love to see you here. But also develop gospel-centred characteristics as we build community together around the gospel. What areas of this second half of, the, of this chapter in 2 Timothy challenge you? You know, how are you going at developing a calm and agreeable disposition? Do you exhibit modesty and respect in the way that you dress and in the way that you present yourself to others? How are you going at cultivating godliness in your life? What are some of the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do? Are you teachable? Are you obedient to the Lord? Are you faithful? You know, what did Jesus say about the person who employs wisdom when they hear the word of God? Is that the wise person puts them into action. If the Holy Spirit is pressing something on your heart today, don't ignore that, act upon that, and enjoy God's blessing as you respond in faith and obedience today. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word and for your instruction. And although there's some, some prickly things in this passage from Second Timothy, uh, Lord, may the heart, may your heart ring true that, Lord, we would continue to shape our lives around the gospel, that we would do the things that you've called us to do, that we would be coming together in prayer, in fervent prayer, seeking you, in, and that our lives would be characterised by prayer. That, Lord, as we pray, you would help us become more calm and, and, and agreeable, that you'd also help us exhibit modesty and respect in the way that we dress and present ourselves. Lord, that we continue to cultivate godliness in our life, that we continue to be teachable and obedient, and, Lord, that love and grace would characterise us and that, Lord, we'd be focused and keep the main thing the main thing and not get offended by anything that Paul's written or, 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 or understanding uh, of, of how our, our differences might be in understanding these passages, Lord. May love and grace overrule anything, Lord, that we'd be united together as a people who are shaped by the gospel above all else. And may you bring blessing to us as we continue in faith and obedience, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Faye.